At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, what we know about Omicron still just a few days after it was ID'd. Not a whole lot more clarity that we got over the weekend about the characteristics of this virus anyway. Whatever those characteristics are, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla says we're ready for him. Vaccine, therapeutic and all. I'm very, very, very confident that this drug works for all known mutations, including the Omicron one. Plus, how another COVID wave could impact your price at the pump. Tapping the global energy markets with CNBC's Brian Sullivan. Bottom line is this, guys, have not read or seen anything as of yet suggesting a meaningful hit to demand. It's Monday, November 29th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you buy in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And uh, yeah, we it's a Monday. We're going to see what's happening this morning. Last week was a bit of a rough one. You saw what happened. First up today on the podcast, how was your weekend? News of the new COVID-19 variant Omicron detected in South Africa, spooking just about everybody over the past few days. Black Friday's shortened trading day was dominated by this headline. The Dow dropped 2.5% for its worst day of 2021. As we go into the closing bell here for an early close, S&P 500 looks like it's cracking the close below 4,600, about 2.25% lower. Down 903 points at the close, just a jarring day. Oil prices and travel stocks also took a hit Friday over new worries that we'll all be staying home again. Known as B11529, the Omicron variant has more than 30 different mutations on the key spike protein, which is how the virus latches onto cells in humans. So it could have potential to spread fast. Here's the nation's top infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, over the weekend. It clearly is giving indication that it has the capability of transmitting rapidly. That's the thing that's causing us now to be concerned, but also to put the pressure on ourselves now to do something about our preparation for this. Dr. Fauci said he would not be surprised if Omicron is already spreading in the U.S. Cases have been detected in a number of European countries, Israel, Australia, and Canada. Many countries now banning travelers coming from South Africa and surrounding nations or moving to reinstate other restrictions. Let's get back to Andrew. We want to start with the latest on the variant from Meg Terrell. Good morning to you, Meg. Good morning, Andrew. Not a whole lot more clarity that we got over the weekend about the characteristics of this virus anyway. The World Health Organization in a risk assessment uh, saying that the risk to the world is considered very high, uh, but also saying it's going to be a few weeks until we know the key answers to some of the most important questions. One, of course, whether it's more transmissible. That is not yet known, but they are watching that very closely in the epidemiological data, particularly from South Africa, but also from other places. They also note in terms of the 
severity, that hospitalizations are increasing in South Africa, but it's not clear if that's due to increased severity or just the fact that cases are going up. We also, of course, heard those reports that uh, most of the cases are mild, but experts are warning against us taking too much solace from that because it's early days. Many of these early cases have been in younger people. Uh, the World Health Organization noting that this variant may carry an increased risk of reinfection. And the question, of course, remains, how will this affect the protection we get from vaccines uh, and from medicines like the antibody drugs? Of course, we heard that multiple countries now have confirmed cases or suspected cases, about a dozen more uh, being added to that list over the weekend. You can see here where Omicron has now been detected, not yet here in the United States, according to the CDC, but we know geneticists and all of the networks are looking very closely for it. It would not be surprising, experts say, to hear about that sometime soon in the U.S. Of course, guys, this comes against the backdrop of issues here in the U.S. with the Delta variant, the New York governor declaring a state of emergency, noting that this state is having uh, transmission rates that we haven't seen since uh, spring of 2020. Uh, and the governor noting that the rate of new hospital admissions has increased to 300 or more a day. So taking that action there to be able to uh, free up hospital capacity, this before we've even seen the variant come to the state or this country. Guys, back to you. Okay, Meg. This Omicron variant, remember, is different because it's got about 30 variations at least on the, the spike protein. Um, that's where these mRNA vaccines work on that spike protein. And that's why there's so many questions about what this may mean. And so many questions, not just about the vaccine itself, but also, you know, the new antivirals and therapies that are coming out and whether those will be effective. And I think there's there seems to be a distinction about maybe the pills will work, but the vaccine won't. How quickly all of this can get rolled out. Pfizer's Policy got one of those. All of it. Yeah, Pfizer has yep. one of those uh, those pills. So we'll get the chance to ask Albert Borla about that as well. I mean, there, there's slight variations. I don't know what it does in terms of the, as I said, the the, the way that the virus is able to, you know, infect human cells. I don't know whether it improves it or, or you know, symptoms. But my question is, the proof of concept of messenger RNA and the safety profile of messenger RNA vaccines, if you change a couple of base pairs, um, and, and I'm talking about the, what, the, what consists of the, the message that you're using to make the protein, can you assume that the safety profile is the same, or do we got to go? I think That's you got to go through it again. That's what the regulators are going to want to know, right? right. You got to go through it again. The testing, which means what? Six, to, six with, months right. to a year after that. You're, you're stimulating the immune system again and again, and then it works great. We've been using vaccines for a long time, but you can't just assume if you change a couple of of things in in the message to to adapt to the Omicron, you can't just assume the safety profile is the same, I don't think. Uh, so you can't we, do, we do it, it in a month. We do it with the flu vaccine. We do it with the flu vaccine every year. That's right. right. Variants right. And but it's, it's done differently. Maybe, maybe we can then. I mean, that every year they just try and pick out the ones that they think will be the most likely right. variants to be spread. And we just assume flu. that that we're not, you know, creating, you not know, that, that those are mRNA vaccines. I don't know what the difference is between. Right. Well, that shouldn't yeah. make it. But I'm just, you know, when you know, we we'll ask, we we'll ask people who know yeah. instead of uh, right. in, instead of conjecturing. But be nice to think that it'd be like the flu, that the proof of concept with messenger RNA, it's safe, we can do it. And, and it's so easy to to just upgrade the software of right. the of the vaccine right. itself and do it. And, and then all of a sudden you're fine. But it does sort of usher in that what Gottlieb has talked about, and that is the Lit the endemic nature, perhaps, of COVID, which it, it's like right. the, like a flu. It's like you know a flu that that it's going to be around forever that we have to deal with seasonally. I don't know.
Perhaps, but I mean, I, and I think this goes to when you know when these pills are available, how much of a game changer that That'd be good. The ultimately becomes the therapeutics. The therapeutics, side of the therapeutics may be. Uh, may, may, we talked about it probably two years ago. How we thought therapeutics would be the answer. That may still be the answer. Do you do testing? What? How do you how do you deal with this if it is going to be endemic? And are we going to have to? I mean, we've there's been a debate around the world about distribution of vaccines, but you know what do we do about manufacturing these not just quickly for developed countries, but Clearly, we have to do it on mass in a way that, frankly, we haven't done thus far. And that's did you, did you part see, of the reason we may be here. Gottlieb was on the airwaves yesterday. Scott Gottlieb, um, the former FDA commissioner who's also on the board of Pfizer. And he was talking about how five of the eight African com- countries where we've now identified these cases right. coming out of and where all these travel yep, bans they have weren't come, taking them. They weren't taking additional yep. deliveries of the vaccines because... They, they either can't get them, them distributed properly or or there's not demand for them. And I, I think we need to hear a little bit more um, from all of these CEOs this morning about that, about what's happening, because the immediate pushback was this is what happens when you don't share your vaccines. Is that the case or is there not enough out there or is there not the distribution or the demand for the vaccines in certain places, too? You see it here in the United States. Right. Therapeutics are different, too. They, they don't they're, they're not they're the site of action is not the spike protein. Right. So that's where all the that's mutations think, are. Hopefully. That's where all the mutations are in the, in the spike protein, and who knows what that does. But if you're able, if the protease inhibitor or, or the polymerase or whatever it is that the right. actual innards, yep. innards of the virus, if you've got something that works against those, it shouldn't matter if the spike protein uh, mutates. If that's conserved, if you get a mutation in that's one of those, it would be a problem. But, right. but that'd be, that's why that Pfizer, well, we'll talk to Borla, about that, you see, the Merck therapeutic is, is not, not nearly as, effective as good as not as effective. Thirty percent versus forty-eight. And the worries about mutagenicity with that one too. Yeah. So the Pfizer is looking, theoretically, you know, we don't right. know, but better and better. Next on Squawk Pod, more on the Omicron variant, but with a dose of optimism. CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, says we're ready. We will be able to have a vaccine in less than hundred days. In fact, we have already. Two vaccines built in less than 100 days. We built one for Delta, but we didn't need to use, and we built one for Beta, which also we didn't have to use. So we will build one at risk right now uh, for Omicron, but will be used only in case we need it. We're back right after this. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We're back. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. 
Uh, big morning and some big interviews. We want to get over to our own Meg Terrell right now because she joins us with a very special guest to talk about this new uh, COVID variant. The person we've all been wanting to talk to all morning, Meg. Well, Andrew, thanks so much. Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, joins us now. Albert, it's really great to have you on with us this morning. And I want to start by asking you about Paxlovid, your COVID antiviral drug uh, that's that's in development. Um, I learned this morning you guys now anticipate you can make 80 million courses up from the projected 50 million you'd expected just a few weeks ago. Tell us about that ability to increase that manufacturing and your expectation of how well this should hold up against Omicron. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, that's true. We are right now uh, c- clearly can commit 80 million doses. It is uh, thanks to, you have seen our manufacturing machine uh, uh, um, really uh, at work and um, they just can make it. And uh, I'm very, very pleased that we are in this situation. Now, when it comes to Omicron and how the treatment should uh, should last, first of all, let me take a step uh, up. I think Omicron is of concern for several reasons, right? But there are a lot of unknown things right now. And keep in mind that we have been preparing for something like that for months. Uh, and um, the, what is the playbook? The playbook it is to understand a little bit better, and then within weeks, I think we will know most of the information that needs to be known, but uh, every day you learn more, then to protect and then to treat. Uh, and uh, to, to understand the virus, I think we need the, the key questions are the questions that you are discussing all day today. I mean, what is the clinical manifestation? Is it more severe? Is it less? Is it going to be spreading faster or not? The second is, are the vaccines going to protect against this new virus, given that has mutations in the spike, and this is where most of the vaccines are working. And the third is, are the treatments going to be protected? On, on the third one, um, it needs to be seen, but uh, the good news in, when it comes to our treatment, it is that was designed with that in mind, was designed with, uh, with, with the fact that most mutations are coming in the spike, so the mechanism of actions that we are having is not related with the spike. So that gives me very, very high level of confidence that the treatment will not be affected, uh, the our oral treatment will not be affected uh, by this virus. When it comes to the vaccine, it remains to be seen. I don't think that the result will be, uh, uh, it, it, the vaccines don't protect. I think the results could be, which we don't know yet, that the vaccines protect less, which means that if the vaccines protect less, it is that, uh, if uh, we need to create a new vaccine. Already we started Friday. Uh, Friday we made our first DNA template, which is the first part of the manufacturing, of the development process of a new vaccine. And uh, we have made multiple times clear that we will be able to have a vaccine in less than 100 days. In fact, we have already two vaccines built in less than 100 days. We built one for Delta, but we didn't know to use because the current vaccine is very effective against Delta. And we built one for Beta which also we didn't have to use. So we will build one at risk right now at, uh, for Omicron that will be used only in case we need it if we see that the current one doesn't work. So uh, you say on Friday you started building that new template for an Omicron-specific uh, vaccine if needed. Tell us about the tests that your scientists and your, your partners at BioNTech and others are running right now to understand how well the current vaccines will hold up, both with the two-dose primary series and then also with a booster. Yes, we are going to test um, this new virus. Um, how serum from people that got vaccinated either with the two doses of our current vaccine 
or with the three doses of our current vaccine, or with vaccines that we have made from Delta, Delta or Beta, uh, respond. And then based on information on that, uh, we will see if uh, and what is needed to, to be done in terms of developing or not uh, the new vaccine. Also, we have a very high surveillance system, keep in mind, right? Both in South Africa, but also you know that in Israel, uh, they are likely the healthcare authority that they have the most reliable data right now. And we are monitoring to see also in real time what that will happen. Keep in mind that I'm quite confident because we got the dose right with, with our vaccine. Um, we from from the first moment right so we had 30 micrograms that uh, with the two doses were very good and we didn't have to reduce the dose uh, for the third one so um it's full dose that we are giving for the for the boosters already so that should provide very high protection levels that um as i said in i don't think i don't know if it will be equally effective at 95 plus percent against the omicron but uh, I don't think I would be very surprised if we are very, very, very low. And as I said, if it is low enough, uh, within 95 days, basically, we will have a new vaccine. It's not the same situation. It's not the same situation when you have a treatment that instead of 10 people going to hospital, only one will go to hospital. Instead of people dying, basically no one dies. So it's very, very, very different story now. Because of the, the antiviral treatment, are you getting more incoming inquiries than you already were from governments around the world about the antiviral drug because of the fears around Omicron? I think that uh, it's not because of the fears against Omicron. Basically, there is no government that didn't call after we, the results of the of the study were, were announced, the 90% efficacy. And uh, they are all right now placing orders for that. Antiviral pill, the, the Paxlovid. I, I mean, I think so many people have been looking at this as such a, a great beacon of hope, um, especially for people who are immunocompromised, because if it's not working with the vaccine, you want to make sure that you can take it if you do get this, if your immune system is not working. But I read something in stat today that concerned me. Um, I have someone who I love who's dealing with cancer, and I know that this is the same for a lot of our viewers, too. Those are the people who we've been so worried about and so protective of and, and trying to make sure that they don't get it. I read something in stat today, though, that Paxlovid can actually react to cancer treatments. So if you are a cancer patient and you were going through uh, some sort of a treatment, Paxlovid, because it's a, a protease inhibitor, can actually interact with some of those. Is, is that the case? And, and can you tell us more about that? It's frankly, in my case, the first time I hear about it. I'm going to, okay. to look at it. But I, I just read it, it this morning in STAT, and, and they're a pretty reliable publication. But if you haven't heard of it, that makes me feel a little better, too. Yeah, but they are very reliable, and we need to see. I, I don't exclude that this is the case, but I haven't heard it before. Okay, thanks. Hey, Albert, is there anything that, that we don't know that you know uh, about another target for some type of, of therapeutic that would go into some type of maybe cocktail like we've seen in dealing with previous viruses? We're, we're talking about the protease inhibitor. I'm wondering how quickly you could see a mutation around that. It seems like it's highly conserved. There's no reason to think that uh, that this new variant uh, that that protease inhibitor would be any different than the one in Delta or, or the original uh, COVID. But are you, at this point, do you have other targets that, that you're working on that you just haven't told us about at this point that, uh, that, that might be used in, in a combination uh, with, with what looks to be very promising already? Yeah. That's a very, very good uh, question. And um, as I said, we designed that, the, the current one, with that in mind so that we'll be able not to develop resistance 
when the virus mutates. It's because as you know, all so far, the mutations that we have seen in variants of concerns are in the spike. And this uh, antiviral has nothing to do with the spike. It works in a very different mechanism. And in fact, the mechanism that it works, which is inhibits a protease in the virus, uh, is such that this protease, it is very vital for the virus to survive. So it's very difficult for the virus to create a mutation that doesn't need this protease and so that the, the drug will not work. So I'm very, very, very confident that uh, this uh, drug works for all known mutations, including the Omicron one. But we are working on follow-up drugs uh, for the eventual case that maybe a resistance is developed. So are there other things, that, that other targets? There's polymerase. I mean, I don't know. It, it's a very small uh, genome. Obviously, there's not a lot of, of different um, proteins that are, that are coded for in, in COVID. It's, there, there would be something else I figure you could use for some type of cocktail. Is there anything else that you're not telling us about that, that Pfizer researchers are, are, are working on, Albert? Nothing that will be announced, let's say, next week. But uh, we are already working with, and this is, you need to know, a standard practice when we do antivirals. So already we are working on second and third generation. Albert, uh, wanted to also separately just ask you about cost and, and cost of the antiviral. We've talked about it before, but if in fact the antiviral pills become the, the you know, a critical component of this, especially if the vaccines don't have the same kind of efficacy, could you see pricing come down? Would you, re would you consider rethinking the pricing? Because as we know, you know, a vaccine might be twenty, thirty dollars. Uh, this uh, antiviral pills could be, you know, ten times, ten, ten, more than ten times that. I think we're talking about six or seven hundred dollars. Yes, you're right. But you know, we 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 went out with a pricing to all the governments that takes that into consideration. You need to know the price of uh, this antiviral, despite the very very high efficacy. It is uh, almost one third of what the prices of uh, the antibodies out there are. So it's, uh, it's really uh, very cost-effective right now for the system, given the hospitalizations that will be avoided. And keep in mind that in, uh, we, we waive the, the patents completely for the low-income countries. So barriers should not be uh, price or intellectual property for anyone to make. So, Albert, if you do um, sort of adapt your vaccine all the time, and we can do it quickly, and, and you're able to do that sort of in a, a flu vaccine type fashion um, to the new variants from COVID. Do you foresee that, that this would be, would you call it a booster? We'd get a, another booster every year, or, or it would be a modified booster that that's, that's, uh, would provide uh, a better antigenic response than, than the original vaccine. Well, do you see this happening every year? We either get a booster, a boost, a regular booster of the same vaccine, or a slightly different vaccine every year to, to deal with uh, what we're seeing with these mutations? Is that, is that what you foresee? It's, it's almost like a, I mean, for Pfizer, you'd be selling these things every year. Not that you want to do that. I'm sure you're not hoping for that, but it would be almost like an annuity for Pfizer. Yes. I, I did make a projection months ago that the most likely scenario, it is that we will need after the third dose, annual revaccinations against COVID for multiple reasons, because of the immunity that will be waning, because of the virus that I'm sure will be maintained around the world for the years to come, and also because of the need of, uh, of um, um, variants that will emerge. I'm more confident right now that this will be the case than I was when I made 
the projection. I think we are going to have an annual revaccination. I don't know how we're going to call it, but it will be an annual revaccination, and that should be able to keep us really safe. Albert, just trying to take a, a step back and a sort of a big picture view of, of things. As you learned about this variant emerging and the information that exists about it, as limited as it is, what is your level of concern about it at this point? With Omicron, you mean? Yes. Look, I'm concerned, but as I said, we have been preparing for that. We have to start with a treatment. If things go wrong, right, and we can't provide protection, which I don't think will be the case, we have a treatment that will work against this virus that can be taken home. You don't need to go to hospital, but one. Secondly, we have done it twice. We were able to create in 95 days a new vaccine tailor-made to new variants. We, will, we started already making for the third time, which is this one. So if the current dose, which is very likely that three doses from the current vaccine will keep us well protected. But I repeat, three doses of the current vaccine will keep us well protected. But if we find out that this is not enough, before the virus starts emerging in those places, in, in, in uh, let's say, in more places in the world than becoming the big one, we should be able to have one developed. The third, manufacturing. We have been working for that with that in mind. This is the playbook. How can we switch manufacturing of a new vaccine to so that we will not lose volume capacity? And we have been reached a level almost overnight. So we will be able to switch our manufacturing capacity and the line that was producing before the old vaccine, within two days, we'll start producing the new vaccine with no loss of volume. And I repeat, we have reached the capacity of a billion doses per quarter. Already this quarter we made a billion doses. So next year, it is almost in the pocket, four billion doses that we can make. If there is a need for a new one, we will make almost 4 billion doses of the new one. So with that in mind, that availability will not be an issue, that the efficacy is very high, that there are treatments around. No, I'm optimistic. We have been preparing for that, and we are going to, 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 to win this battle as well. All right. Some optimism is what we need, Albert. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, and uh, we hope to have you back soon as we get more information about the vaccines in this variant. Thanks again. Stay well. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, what all this Omicron news means for the energy markets and for your gas prices with CNBC's Brian Sullivan. I think this COVID news gives OPEC some political cover if it wanted to pause to say, well, it's COVID and it's demand and we don't know, rather than pausing based solely on the SPR release. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. 
And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Stand Andrew by. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. We want to get an update right now on the oil markets. Brian Sullivan has more on what is at stake. Brian. Yeah, what's at stake is global pricing, Andrew. Okay, of course, crude oil took a 13% hit on Friday. That was the fifth biggest drop of all time in the futures markets going all the way back to 1988. Right now, we are recovering not quite half that. Crude oil futures up about 5%, 4.9%, whatever you want to say, as we were saying that maybe they were shot of the downside a lot of positive stuff about demand coming out, right? Demand for petroleum products. Gas Buddy saying that gasoline demand in America set a four-day record last week. If you were on the roads, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody was driving. Phil LeBeau has been talking about flights. Well, jet fuel demand, at least right now, not expected to take a major hit. Remember, the fuel used on the few flights per day back and forth from the U.S. to Africa is basically irrelevant. It's just a couple of flights a week. The question is whether any demand to hit the domestic U.S. flying so far does not appear so yet. Again, that could change. But yet a lot of fear in the oil markets coming into last week about lockdowns for Germany does not look like that will happen. They may have some regional shutdowns among the unvaccinated. That's pretty much it. Bottom line is this, guys, have not read or seen anything as of yet. And that's key yet suggesting a meaningful hit to demand. Again, that could change. But we are not seeing it at this time. Now, globally, there are a lot of things happening, particularly this week. You've got OPEC Plus meeting on Thursday. The question is, will it continue its path of adding an extra 400,000 barrels per day each month, like they've been doing, scaling up, or decide to pause because demand is uncertain? We'll see. There have been some headlines today. The Saudi energy minister, Abdulaziz Ben Salman, saying sort of in a passing comment, that he is, quote, calm and not really concerned what that means. We can read into it. Also lost to the headlines, guys. Talks on reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal kicked off in Vienna, Austria today. It is unknown how those will turn out. But if they turn out well, it could bring Iran back into the global market, sort of on the U.S. side in dollars anyway, legally, which could add more demand or supply. Not expected to see that. But the Iranian nuclear talks also kicking off if we needed something else to weave into this global story. You know, Brian, the, the biggest question, though, if the Saudis are going to go ahead with this or not, will they get a pass from the White House if, if they do? If they say, OK, at this point, we're going to hold off and wait and see what happens, which maybe is a reasonable thing to go ahead and do. The White House has already put so much pressure. How would they react to that? That's a really interesting question, Becky. I'm going to say the three most hated words anybody on TV wants to say. <laughs> I don't know. Because here, here's, the, here's the dominoes game, right? You've got the president coming out sort of urging OPEC to release more oil. At the same time, by the way, they want to increase fees on drilling in federal land. They're doing that. So they get together this coalition with RSPR. The coalition is small, but the SPR released 50 million barrels, kind of sending a message. If OPEC pauses and says, well, we're going to wait and see, that could increase attention for the NOPEC bill, these sort of outlawing cartel bills that have been in Congress. Do you know who the co-sponsor of that NOPEC bill was back in the day? I would A say senator Joe from Biden. Delaware by the name 
of Joseph R. Biden. Correct. So I think this COVID news Friday gives OPEC some political cover if it wanted to pause to say, well, it's COVID and it's demand and we don't know, rather than pausing based solely on the SPR release. Because you also got to remember, Joseph R. Biden, the senator from Delaware, urged then-President Bill Clinton to sue OPEC 21 years ago. His history with this organization has been adversarial. It's gone back a long time. Thursday should be very interesting, assuming the meeting is not delayed. Indeed it will be. Brian, thank you. That is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts and send us feedback on what you hear. We're on Twitter at Squawk CNBC or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.